I was just leaving the theater. Convertible 1969 gold Cadillac with a white material. I drove it up here. And I started to do some thinking. around in it on the freeway and I'm having a really, really good time. Flat black glass. Smoking big spliffs and cruising. Saturday noon to two. On the freeway. Good feeling. I'll tell you. Can I see? Hello, Blake. Henry. Yeah. Charlie here. Yeah. I have a report here, Henry, from your uh, from your chief nurse, Major O'Houlihan. She makes some accusations, Henry. I, I find pretty hard to believe. Uh, the dude minds, man. I'm Michael Spiegelman. And I am Carl, not Spiegelman. Join us every Sunday, 2 to 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on MutinyRadio.fm for... Let's watch a full-length movie on... YouTube. We watch the best movies that... uh, Aren't they good? Well, they're chosen Uh, Here's his theme song again. Bye. Okay, bye. Watch a full-length movie. What's happening? This is your boy, Rob Edwards. I'm here to tell you about...
This is a full three months of food without needing any refrigeration or special storage. And you're looking at our long. Bleeding 
Okay, well, good morning. Um, trying to play uh, Brittany Howard there. Uh, working on a new computer. <clears throat> so there are going to be some moments like that, I guess. Um, nothing wrong with Nina Simone, but I want to play something else. Let's see if we can get it now. Oh, she's still singing around the rock. Well, this is the B, and this is uh, Labor and Love Radio. You're tuned to Mutiny Radio, and we're here at 2781 21st Street with our show. The show is called Labor and Love Radio. <clears throat> and you're all welcome to sit in here and work the morning shift with me. My name is Bill Morgan, a.k.a. The B. And every week I bring you your weekly labor news magazine, labor history, opinion, labor commentary, what's going on around the world of labor, both in the world, all over the world, and here in the U.S. And today we're going to talk about some local issue, a local issue where city workers are being forced, I guess we can say, to get vaccine shots. <clears throat> and um, we'll talk more about that later. The, <clears throat> the city of San Francisco is uh, um, insisting that uh, city workers get vaccine shots. So we'll have to see how that goes. Um, that's a tough issue. Very tough issue. Okay, what do we got for you today? Well, we got, like I said, we started out with Bishop Bullwinkle and his the na na. I'm playing that for a special friend in Sacramento right now. I'll play something else too. Let's see if we can play this other one. These are songs that uh, he suggested for me to play on my show. Well, we're still getting Brittany. We're still getting Nina Simone, and there's certainly nothing wrong with that, except that uh, that's not what we want. Brittany Howard.
Jimmy Reed there with uh, <clears throat> Eddie Taylor on bass with uh, Big Boss Man, uh, early 60s hit, <clears throat> Reed, master of the very simple, minimalist harmonica playing, uh, backbeat, heavy backbeat, Jimmy Reed. For uh, VJ Records, had a hit. Other hits like uh, Baby What You Want Me To Do, Bright Lights, Big City, Jimmy Reed. Before that, we had Nina Simone and uh, her Sinner Man. And a couple before that dedicated to my buddy Earl. Bishop Bullwinkle with a na na. And Brittany Howard with a beautiful rendition of I Want to Stay High with You. This is The Bee, and you're tuned to Mutiny Radio. And I'm really here at 2781 21st Street, not on the Zoom. <clears throat> Every week we come to you with Labor and Love, Labor News Opinion and Commentary. We tell you how it is. If one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table, that is, where you work, you're on the menu. And never, but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. It's only a waste of time. Missed last week, um, missed celebrating Juneteenth for the very good reason that my uh, wedding anniversary is Juneteenth. <clears throat> so we skipped it, but I want to get into the significance of the Juneteenth holiday. <clears throat> Every year about this time, it gets all kinds of uh, attention. In fact, this year it's been named the federal holiday. So what's all the fuss about, huh? We'll get into that, the teenth. And uh, San Francisco city employees now are going to be required to get a vaccine shot. To some people, it's uh, an obvious step, right? Everybody's got to do it. To others, it's uh, oppression, state forcing you to do something to your body, especially for those people who don't believe in the efficacy of the vaccine. Those people who find instances of people getting sicker or 
people outright dying. It happens, okay, in, in such a big, whatever they call it, a sample. So uh, that's something we'll have to talk about. Uh, San Francisco City employees weigh in on that. And of course we've got labor news from all around the world on radio labor. And this is where we start out each, each week. What's going on all around the world? Radio Labor. This is Solidarity News on Radio Labor. This is a Radio Labor World Report recorded on Friday, June 25th, 2021. I'm Mark Bolanzi. In the report this week, how unions can use their shareholder power to reform corporations. The Protecting the Right to Organize Act in the United States. The Labor Start report about union events and singing. Our unions, our union that defends our rights. But our unions as strong as our will is to fight. This is Radio Labor. The monies invested by unions to fund pension plans and other activities can be powerful instruments for reforming corporate behavior. For example, the British Columbia General Employees Union in Canada, the BCGEU, recently used its shareholder power at the annual general meeting of Thomson Reuters. TRI, as the company is known, was built as a Canada-based media corporation. But in recent times, it has been moving more into technology applications. One of those applications is face recognition software that is being used to supply information on undocumented workers in the United States. The information is being purchased by the U.S. Department of Immigration and Customs Enforcement, which works under its acronym ICE. I talked to Stephanie Smith, the president of the BCGEU, about the motion her union presented at the Thomson Reuters annual general meeting in June. Major tech companies like Microsoft, Amazon, IBM, they have linked their approaches to human rights to the UN's guiding principles on business and human rights. And under those principles, each of those companies announced that they were going to restrict the development of facial recognition technology. Thomson Reuters, which used to be just a media company, is now a major technology company, but they haven't committed to the same principles. And their shift to a tech company sort of puts them in the same league as Facebook and Google. We're long-term investors in TRI, and we wanted to do everything that we could to ensure that a higher bar for human rights mitigation was the standard for data-led companies that touch our lives. We became aware that Thomson Reuters Incorporated was providing software to ICE, and that ICE was using that software to track, detain, and deport migrants on a massive scale. And so our proposal was that shareholders request the board to produce a human rights risk report that would identify the potential risks in its business and compare its procedures, if any, for identifying and mitigating those human rights risks 
against the other prominent technology companies. Can you tell us a bit more about what services Thomson Reuters was providing to ICE in the United States? Absolutely. So the core is a piece of software that's called CLEAR, C-L-E-A-R, and that allows ICE agents to access a huge amount of personal information that they wouldn't be able to collect on their own. So in the most simplest of terms, ICE couldn't legally collect the information that they get through CLEAR, but they can legally buy it from Thomson Reuters. And so, again, for us as long-term investors, That means that the responsibility is on TRI as a technology company to ask themselves some pretty hard questions about how their technology is being used. Because in the case of CLEAR, it's being used to identify, target migrants, and the activists that support them. There was a vote at the annual general meeting of Thomson Reuters. What happened? Um, Well, (laughs) uh, you know, again, we were under no illusion that we would actually win this vote because the vast majority of TRR shares are actually owned by the Thomson family. They own about 70% of those shares. So our objective from the start was really to engage with the independent shareholders, and we were very successful on that front. We got support from some of the world's largest proxy advisory firms, including ISS and Glass-Lewis. We did a ton of shareholder engagement. We spoke on panels. We did direct outreach. And, of course, we did media. So we got more than 70% of the independent shareholders' votes. But, as I said, that's about 30% of all shareholders. So we consider that a win. Um, Our goal was to ask the questions, to bring the dialogue to the forefront, and, of course, the vote was a milestone because our goal of getting TRI to up their game on human rights, that hasn't changed. If the BCGEU objects to the company's actions, why doesn't it just pull out its investments? Well, there are two options for investors, and of course at the BCGU, we take our role as trustees of our members' dues dollars extremely seriously. And as investors, there are two options. You can divest, which we have done um, around fossil fuels and some other companies, or you can do shareholder engagement, the capital stewardship program, which is what we're doing. Because, again, this is about leveraging workers' dollars to make changes for working people, and we've been incredibly successful in that. And I think our returns speak for the success that we've been having and our successes in engaging with these corporations and companies that we are long-term investors in also speaks to that success. You can find more information about the BCGEU's Thomson Reuters campaign on the union site at bcgeu.ca. In the United States, the most progressive labor legislation since the Depression is being considered by the country's top-level Senate. The Protecting the Right to Organize Act, known as the PRO Act, has already been passed by the lower House of Representatives. The AFL-CIO, the largest labor federation in the U.S., has released a video calling for union members to support the campaign to have the PRO Act enacted. What is the PRO Act? It's the most significant worker empowerment legislation since the Great Depression. The PRO Act will create a fair process for forming unions, so we all can have a say in our wages and working conditions. More than 60 million workers say they would vote to join a union today if given the chance. 
The PRO Act would give them that chance. So, what's the plan? 1. The PRO Act empowers workers to exercise our freedom to organize and bargain for improvements at work. It will ensure that workers can reach a first contract quickly after their union is recognized. 2. It will repeal Jim Crow era right to work laws that lead to lower wages and unsafe workplaces. 3. It will protect collective action and prevent companies from permanently replacing workers on strike. No worker should be punished or lose their job for speaking up for their rights. 4. The PRO Act will create pathways for workers to form unions in new industries like big tech without fear of retaliation. And 5. It will hold corporations accountable by strengthening the power of the National Labor Relations Board and creating real penalties for companies that violate workers' rights. But the PRO Act is much more than labor law reform. It's also civil rights legislation. A union contract is the single best tool we have to close racial and gender wage gaps. Contracts ensure dignity and due process for all workers, regardless of where we were born or how we identify. The PRO Act will fight inequality for every worker. We know that when union membership declines, inequality skyrockets. Even though productivity has increased by 74% from 1973 to 2013, hourly wages increased by only 9%. This is not fair. Working people shouldn't be fighting for scrap while companies profit off our labor. We won a mandate when we elected pro-labor leaders to the White House, House of Representatives, and the Senate. This is our once-in-a-generation chance to win the change we need. Working people deserve a voice in the job, at the bargaining table, and on the picket line. It's time to reclaim our power. Call your senators and tell them to pass the PRO Act. Here with his report about union events is Labor Start correspondent Derek Blackadder. This week, our top stories section included links to coverage of a multi-union campaign to draw attention to the plight of media workers in Iran, the woodworkers pushing to protect the Amazon rainforest and create decent work at the same time, and the impact of the general strikes in Colombia and in Lebanon. For our Working Women page, our volunteers found the story of a big win for survivors of sexual harassment in the workplace in Malawi, a celebration of the role women have played in building the labor movement in Trinidad and Tobago, and the daily struggles of the women who make up the vast majority of public health workers in India and their importance in the fight against COVID-19. Our health and safety newswire highlighted the triggering of the very first International Labor Organization Convention on Violence and Harassment in the Workplace and the toolkits that the global unions are developing to assist unions in implementing it. We also had stories about a workplace accident compensation award win for undocumented workers in the United States and a fight for safe work by migrant workers in Taiwan. Our photo of the week is of one of the workers who struck for 120 days to win vaccinations for education workers in Sao Paulo, Brazil. Labor Start hosts online solidarity actions at the requests of unions around the world. This week, we'd like to highlight an urgent appeal for online solidarity with tobacco workers in the United States. These workers are struggling to get their employer to recognize their trade union. 
Look for details of this and other campaigns on our site. It takes only seconds to send a message that could help change workers' lives for the better. This is Derek Blackadder from Labor Start, reporting for Radio Labor. Now here is Robin Roberts with If It Weren't For The Union. Our union story is here to be seen. We've won many victories and suffered defeats. But as I turn through the pages and look back through time, there's one single question stands out in my mind. Today we may prosper, today we live free, but if it weren't for the union, where would we be? It's our union, our union that defends our rights, but our union's as strong as our will is to fight. For the union is you, and the union is me, so stand up and stand by our union. its humble beginnings our union has grown so no working person needs struggle alone but no gain that's been made has been made without cost and together we'll see that no gains ever lost take a look at those countries where workers aren't free if it weren't for the unions where would we be it's our unions our unions defends our rights but our unions as strong as our will is to fight for the union is you and the union is me so stand up and stand by our union would you choose to go back working 12 hours a day would you choose to toil more and a pittance be paid would you stand with the union against the new right or do you think on your own you can withstand their might the answer is written in our history if it weren't for the union where would we be it's our union our union that defends our rights but our unions as strong as our will is to fight for the union is you and the union is me so stand up and stand by our union. They say we've got problems and the unions they blame. Well, Franco and Pinochet, they said the same. If our union they weaken, if our union they break, then where's our defense from becoming enslaved? So would you choose bondage above liberty? And if it weren't for the union, where would we be? It's our union, our union that defends our rights. But our union's as strong as our will is to fight. For the union is you, and the union is me. So stand up and stand by our union. It's our union, our union that defends our rights. But our union's as strong as our will is to fight. For the union is you, and the union is me. So stand up and stand by our union. And that's it. International labor news you can use. I'm Mark Boulanger. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about global solidarity.
right now looking for uh, Quetzal. I want to play one by Quetzal called This Is My Home. It's funny how when you're looking for something, <laughs> you forget alphabetical order. Here's Quetzal. This is my home.
ought to be, but it must be, a national holiday. As the Vice President noted, a holiday that will join the others of our national celebrations, our independence, our laborers who built this nation, our servicemen and women who served and died in its defense. And the first new national holiday since the creation of Martin Luther King holiday nearly four decades ago. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1947. That was the day spontaneous protest strikes began against the new Taft-Hartley Act. 
250,000 soft coal miners in Pennsylvania walked out of the pits. 102,000 shipyard workers of the CIO's Industrial Union of Marine and Shipbuilding Workers followed the miners' example on the East and Gulf Coasts. The Greater Akron Area Council of Labor Unions joined AFL and CIO councils representing 185,000 workers demanded that top union leaders call a general strike in defense of labor's civil liberties. Workers at Chrysler's Khrushchev plant walked out in protest even as the nation's steel mills and auto plants began to slow from the absence of coal. Congressman Fred Hartley, co-author of the slave labor bill, denounced the UMW as mutinous citizens and demanded immediate enforcement of the act against the walkout. Millions of trade unionists, white hot with anger at the repressive union-busting legislation, were ready for job actions. But in this instance, William Green, head of the AFL, and Philip Murray, head of the CIO, were agreed in their opposition to general strike action. William Green reported that he had been flooded with appeals from AFL unions across the country calling for a general strike. He feared taking strike action would invite lawsuits and favored fighting through the courts and private contracts. Murray echoed Green and rejected any talk of a general protest strike. He invited leaders of the AFL and the Railroad Brotherhoods to join the CIO in a two-pronged fight against Taft-Hartley. Murray looked to challenge the act's constitutionality in the courts and hoped to unseat the congressman who passed it in the 1948 election. Unions are still hamstrung by many of the act's devastating provisions. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1947. That was the day the despised Taft-Hartley Act became law. It was a direct retaliatory response to the 1946 post-war strike wave where millions walked off the job after waiting years for basic demands. The labor movement mobilized against the slave labor bill through numerous rallies. The AFL joined the CIO in threatening 24-hour strikes across whole industries in protest as the bill wound its way through Congress. 11,000 soft coal miners in Pennsylvania walked out in a spontaneous protest strike earlier in the month. The bill passed over the veto of President Harry S. Truman, who would invoke it a dozen times over the course of his presidency. Many union leaders hailed Truman as a friend of labor for his 11th hour veto. Labor Party advocates were incensed that of the 219 congressional Democrats, 126 voted in favor of the bill. Practically overnight, the labor movement had been pushed back 25 years. Taft-Hartley was nothing short of disastrous for the American labor movement. With the stroke of a pen, the act criminalized many of the actions key to historic union victories in the 30s and 40s. Jurisdictional strikes, secondary boycotts, solidarity strikes, closed shops, and mass picketing were just a few of the most basic trade union activities now outlawed. The act helped fire the first shots of the McCarthy Red Scare by mandating that union officers file non-communist affidavits with the government, which was later found to be unconstitutional. The act also provided the ammunition needed to strangle strikes by empowering the president to easily acquire strike-breaking injunctions. And it allowed for the rapid growth of right-to-work laws at the state level. And because of Taft-Hartley, the union movement has suffered ever since.
Okay, this is one of the actions taken during World War II by John Lewis, leader of the Coal Miners Union. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1943. That was the day United Mine Workers President John L. Lewis issued strike orders at the nation's mines, calling out more than half a million miners. The third general coal strike in three months defied the wartime no-strike pledge. Miners raised several demands, including wage increases, an end to the dangerous third shift, and portal-to-portal pay. High wartime inflation only worsened miners' already low wages. Early that spring, Lewis denounced the mine owners, the War Labor Board, and the Little Steel formula used to calculate wartime wages. He warned the formula meant starvation for workers and the end of collective bargaining. By April, President Roosevelt had ordered wage freezes. Miners began walking out of the pits even before the strike call as soon as the War Labor Board handed down their decision on June 19th. The board had rejected all of the miners' demands. The United Mine Workers responded, stating, quote, No member and no officer of the United Mine Workers of America would be so destitute of principle and so devoid of honor as to sign or execute such an infamous yellow dog contract. Though the United Mine Workers were forced to call off the strike the next day, some miners continued to stay out in protest. Four days later, Congress passed the dreaded Smith-Conley Act, dubbed the Slave Labor Bill, in response to the strike. Throughout the summer, miners across the country would rage against the government for threatening them with conscription and jail time if they dared refuse the terms of the decision. By November, the miners would walk out a fourth time and finally win many of their demands, at least from the War Labor Board. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Labor History in 2. Okay, so that's the... The infamous Taft-Hartley Act, which is still part of the law, which severely curtails union union activities, um, and an instance in World War II of when, I mean, companies were were going crazy. They were making so much money, and they got a wage freeze sent through. So workers, you know, while the companies were making so much money and the workers were producing the materials for the war, workers were starving. A couple weeks ago, we had a feature about the Hawaii strike in Hawaii, the Hawaii 7. Here's a story from 1953, the same era that we're talking about. was 1953. That was the day 26,000 members of the ILWU in Hawaii walked off the job. Their strike was a four-day protest against the witch hunt convictions of the Hawaii 7. Many docks and plantations immediately shut down. Stevedores refused to load military cargo headed to the war in Korea. At the height of the McCarthyite Red Scare, union militants continued to be the primary targets of anti-communist hysteria. Longshoremen 
leader Jack Hall and six co-defendants had just been tried and convicted under the Smith Act. The ILWU denounced the trial and verdict as a frame-up. It was the ultimate move to bust the increasingly powerful union on the islands. The ILWU had come under heightened surveillance after successfully organizing stevedores and many sugar and pineapple plantations. The real trouble began after a long and bitter dock strike in 1949. Then Nebraska Senator Hugh Butler proclaimed the island to be firmly in the grips of a communist attack. HUAC arrived the next year to investigate the red situation. In August 1951, the FBI conducted early morning raids to arrest the seven on charges of violating the Smith Act. The arrests came as the ILWU threatened a sugar strike, having reached an impasse in contract negotiations. During the trial, it was clear the seven were being tried not for anything they did, but for allegedly being part of a vast and secret conspiracy. The proceedings had the quality of a show trial, designed more to terrorize the public and labor movement than to prosecute any actual crime. Their convictions were finally overturned with the landmark 1957 Yates decision, which rendered much of the Smith Act unenforceable. Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com. Okay, that's labor history, and that last one was sort of a coda uh, to the story that we've been uh, treating on this show about the organizing that took place in Hawaii. Now, an interesting one that we talked about at the top of this show is about San Francisco, this is local news, okay? This is us. And um, it's about city workers, of which I was one, although now I find out that teachers are not city workers, even though that we're in the city workers' retirement program and everything else. We're employees of the school board. So, I don't know. that. Anyway, people like police, 35,000 city employees are being mandated now to get vaccinated for the COVID. And this brings up a tricky issue, okay? This is, we'll discuss it, talk about it a little bit. Their job could be on the line. KPX Files. Let's start it over. Does not, does not exclude from state charter school districts, different entities. Yes. Let's see what's going on. And right now, a whole bunch of questions about how all city employees will be required to get vaccinated against the coronavirus. And if they aren't, their job could be on the line. KPX 5's Wilson Walker reports on the bold new policy. And Wilson, no surprise, not everybody's on board with this. Well, Brian, we should say right off the bat that this is, does not 
does not include teachers. They technically work for the school district, different entity. But yeah, for more than 35,000 city employees, vaccination will be mandatory. And right now, a whole bunch of questions about how that is actually going to work. So we are in favor of anybody and everybody being vaccinated. However, we are not in favor of forced mandatory vaccines, whether that be due to personal beliefs, religious beliefs, political beliefs, health issues, safety issues, whatever the case may be. There is the initial response from the union that represents San Francisco's muni workers. As of lunchtime, they had been given few details on how the city plans to enforce the mandate. No, no guidelines. It was just pretty much, hey, this is what we're doing. Here it is. Like it or not. I just see it as extreme that, you know, they would terminate, you know, someone over this. The city's police officers union also has concerns, as well as the union that represents the city's firefighters. They issued a statement saying they are consulting with employment lawyers and working with labor partners to make sure that any mandate is implemented in a fair manner. And we understand there might be medical reasons or health reasons that people don't want to get the vaccine. Uh, we will definitely, our human resources department will meet with people if they have a grievance and try and resolve it. The city thinks somewhere between 50 50 and 60% of its workforce is already vaccinated. The mandate would take effect 10 weeks after the FDA gives a vaccine its full approval. I think probably you might have some people who just want to wait for uh, the FDA approval right before they get vaccinated. That remains to be seen, just like what kinds of exemptions the city will ultimately allow and how it responds to any pushback. This is gonna be a very interesting new uh, piece of policy here in the city and county of San Francisco. We'll deal with it as, as it goes along, but like I said, we're not in favor of mandatory uh, vaccines. All right, city workers will have until July 29th to tell the city what their vaccination status is. That's the first little bit that happens, but the real the real clock starts ticking when the FDA gives one of the one of the vaccines its full approval beyond the emergency authorization. That's when they have the window to actually get vaccinated. So there's still a lot of time to work this all out. I'm told there was actually a meeting late this afternoon with all the parties that you just heard from to try to try to assuage some of these fears, answer some questions. So we might very soon learn more about how this all might work. We're live here in San Francisco. Wilson Walker, KPIX5. So uh, I leave it to you, okay? I leave it to you. Uh, what's fair here? On the one hand, people are going to say, "Is America's fastest yeah, growing?" Everybody brand. should get vaccinated because if everybody doesn't get vaccinated, those people who aren't vaccinated could give the COVID to one another, or even in some situations. Uh, expose people to lower doses, lower uh, lower grade um, versions of the COVID or variants of the COVID. So then again, if, if you're a worker, you could say, well, I don't believe in this uh, philosophically or medically, whatever your reason is. And I'm not going to do it. So does that mean you should lose your job? 
Some people would say yes. Some people would say you don't have that right. You don't have the right to put other citizens in peril. Well, anyway, I have to see. Um, Problems, allergic reactions, kidney injuries, capillary leak syndrome, decreased plate. It's, it's still up in the air. I mean, we're going to have to see how this plays out. Mr. Trump and his minions have made the whole vaccination question a political football. They've turned it into, if you're for Trump, you're against vaccination. If you're a Democrat, you're for vaccination. Something like that. Of course, certainly not that cut and dried. But uh, play some music. La Línea, the border.
Holly came from Miami, FLA. Hitchhiked away across USA. Plucked her eyebrows on the way, shaved her legs, and then he was a she. She says, Hey, babe, take a walk on the wild side. Said, Hey, honey, take a walk on the wild side. Candy came from out on the island. In the back room, she was everybody's darling. But she never lost her head, even when she was given head. She says, Hey, babe, take a walk on the wild side. Said, Hey, babe, take a walk on the wild side. And the colored girls go, Do, 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 here and a hustle there New York City is the place where they said hey babe take a walk on the wild side I said hey Joe take a walk on the wild side sugar pump fairy came and hit the streets looking for soul food and a place to eat Went to the Apollo, you should have seen him go, go, go. They said, hey, sugar, take a walk on the wild side. I said, hey, babe, take a walk on the wild side. All right. Ha. Jackie is just speeding away. She was James Dean for a day. Then I guess she had to crash. Valium would have helped that fast. I said, hey, babe, take a walk on the wild side. I said, hey, honey, take a walk on the wild side. And the colored girls say, do, 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 Thank you. 
You work hard for a living until you get old. And sometimes they push you right out of the cold. When you're working times through, you don't want charity. You'd like to retire with some dignity. And you're too old to work, too old to work. When you're too old to work, and you're too young to die. Who will take care of you? How you get by when you're too old to work and you're too young to die? They put horses to pasture. They feed 'em on hay. Even machines get retired someday. The boss gets a pension when he is too old. You helped him retire. You're out in the cold. And you're too old to work, too old to work. When you're too old to work, and you're too young to die. Who will take care of you? How you get by? When you're too old to work, and you're too young to die. There's no easy answer. There's no easy cure. Dreaming won't change it. That's one thing for sure. But fighting together, we'll get there someday. And when we have won, we'll no longer say, "Too old to work, too old to work." When you're too old to work, and you're too young to die. Who will take care of you? How you get by when you're too old to work and you're too young to die? When you're too old to work and you're too young to die. Indeed. We'll take care of you when you're too old to work and you're too young to die. This is why we say at the head of every show, if you don't have a seat at the table, a negotiating table, who's going to speak for you if not yourself, if not someone just like you? The whole thrust now of employment policy is to put you out there with a contract. No benefits, no pension, no medical plan, no safety measures unless you insist upon those things, unless you are willing to demand those things. You'll be too old to work and too young to die. That's an easy one to see, right? I want to read an article now from this book called Labor Heroines.
Yes, and I'm going through my books now since I've been moving. I found this pamphlet published in 1974 by the Union Wage and Educational Committee in Berkeley, California. 1974, so that's a good time ago. This is articles about women who led the fight. Uh, the labor fight. This one is Sarah Bagley. Sarah Bagley fought for a 10-hour day. In 1844, five women workers organized a Lowell Female Labor Reform Association. Let me see if I can put some Kerry Maraji on the back here. Calling on all women operator, operatives in the cotton mills to join their struggle, Sarah Bagley and the Lowell Female Labor Reform Association wrote, in the strength of our united influence, we will show these driveling cotton lords, this mushroom aristocracy of New England, who so arrogantly aspire to lord it over God's heritage, that our rights cannot be trampled upon with impunity. When a company agent threatened a firewoman who had joined the 10-hour movement, she said, We will make the name of him who dares the axe stink with every wind from all parts of the compass. Within a year, the association had more than 600 members in Lowell and branches in every New England textile center. Sarah Bagley became an organizer, a public speaker, and editor of The Voice of Industry, the most widely read labor newspaper of the 1840s. In 1843 and 1844, 10-hour petitions to the legislature in Boston were ignored. But in 1845, when the petition carried the signatures of more than 2,000 operatives, a hearing was set before the Committee on Manufactures. The head of the committee was William Schuler, proprietor of the Lowell Courier, Voice of the Employers. He sent a notice to J.Q.A. Thayer, S.G. Bagley, and others. I would inform you that as part, the greater part of the petitioners are females, it will be necessary for them to make defense or we shall be under the necessity of laying it aside. Well, that's pretty. That's pretty cut and dried there, huh? I feel so low. I don't want that one. Schuler may have believed that timidity would prevent the women from appearing in public appearing in public, but he was mistaken. Eliza Hemingway, Judith Payne, Sarah Bagley, and many others testified before the committee. 
first government investigating committee on labor conditions in American history. It told about the long hours, the low wages, the bad ventilation. There was one room in which 150 people worked. There were 293 small lamps and 61 large lamps. And some days as many as 30 girls were overcome by the fumes. The committee concentrated on Ms. Bagley, leader of these discontented women, and tried to confuse her with their questions. What would the women do with their time if they worked for only 10 hours? She answered that they would cultivate their minds. Mentioning that for the last four years she had held an evening class in her room after a day at the mills. Later the committee decided that it was all that teaching, not the long hours that had undermined her health. Oh, there you go. <laughs> the employer's testimony emphasized the rosy aspects of a 14-hour day, claiming the girls were healthy because they rose early and went to bed early. Editorial comment. This is the kind of nonsense that's being peddled to working people now. If you're making too much money, you're not going to want to work. You're, if you get too much unemployment, you know, everything's going to be okay and you're not going to want to work. I mean, we can't have that. Who's going to make us rich? The employer's testimony emphasized the rosy aspects of a 14-hour day claiming the girls were healthy because they rose early and went to bed early. In view of this conflicting evidence, the committee made a quick inspection trip to the Lowell Mills and decided the women were in good health. After admiring glass, grass plots and flower beds, their report states, the remedy for long hours does not lie with us. We look forward in the progressive improvement in art and science. And this is the myth of, one of the myths of modern capitalism, that innovation will come and make our lives better. Someone always has to do the work, though. <clears throat> a higher appreciation of man's destiny and a less love for money and a more ardent love for social happiness and intellectual superiority. So what they were saying to the women was, one of these days, somebody's going to come up with a great idea that's going to make your work better. Sure, the idea was socialism. The woman retaliated by campaigning for the defeat of Schuler, who was running for re-election that fall, and they succeeded. This is extraordinary in view of the fact that they could not vote. The Voice of Industry published their triumphant resolution that the members of this association tender their grateful acknowledgments to the voters of Loyal, Lowell for consigning William Schuler to the obscurity he so justly deserves. Well, of course, there would be a big strike later on, uh, 1912, I believe, in Lowell, Massachusetts. Um, okay, so 
Vera Bagley, one of our uh, labor leaders, one of our label, labor definition definers. The first time a commission studied uh, working conditions. Jen, I really like your hair. Thanks, Becky. I think the curls are awesome. Black hair's the best. Ah! Can you not do that? It's kind of inappropriate. What? Why? Well, it's kind of racist. You're probably wondering, what went wrong in this workplace interaction between Becky and Jen? Unless you have a keen understanding of racial discrimination in today's workforce, you probably... Hey, Jen, I really like your hair. Thanks, Becky. I think the curls are awesome. Black hair's the best. Ah! Can you not do that? It's kind of inappropriate. What? Why? Well, it's kind of racist. You're probably wondering, what went wrong in this workplace interaction between Becky and Jen? Unless you have a keen understanding of racial discrimination in today's workforce, you probably didn't notice that something very offensive has taken place. Jen called Becky the R-word, causing Becky to feel shame and sadness. How can we avoid situations like this? Workplace discrimination is a very serious issue, and we have to be sensitive to our employees' different ethnic and cultural backgrounds. And just as it's important to be sensitive to our black, Arab, and other non-white co-workers, it's also equally important to be sensitive to our white co-workers' sensitivity to that sensitivity. Can you believe that Trump wants to build the wall? I mean, I must really bother you as a Mexican. Actually, I am Bolivian. How dare you? I went to Berkeley. Berkeley. Sometimes racial discrimination in the workplace can happen unintentionally. Take, for instance, this scene where Marco accidentally angered Tom by correcting him. Marco may not be Mexican, but correcting Tom in that manner made Tom confused, scared, and hostile. This situation could have been avoided altogether. Let's see how. Can you believe Trump wants to build a wall? I mean, that must really bother you as a Mexican. Um, yeah. I love Mexicans. They're so hardworking. Yeah, they, I mean, yes, we are, we are great. Viva la Mexico! <laughs> Go! Crisis averted. Every day we learn more about how people of color live with histories of oppression. And every day, we forget about those who also live with those histories, the oppressors, 
You see, the average person of color has spent years developing a thick skin when it comes to systemic racial oppression, while the average white person can go through many of their formative years without ever having to think about race. So hearing about racism can be traumatic for your white coworkers and create a negative work environment. White privilege might seem like everything is easier all the time, and it is, but it can also be hard because feelings are hard. Yes, I just got the raise, 30 bucks an hour. Let's celebrate after work. That's great, 30 bucks. Congratulations, oh my God. Denise just got a raise and told Jane about it in celebration. But what Denise doesn't know is Jane is actually earning far more for the same job, and now she feels guilty about it. If Denise had just kept her new income to herself, this whole situation could have been avoided. Yes, I just got the raise. Let's celebrate after work. Drinks are on you. Of course. <laughs> Being sensitive to white fragility is difficult, which is why we've devised a simple system to help you foster a non-hostile work environment for your white employees and coworkers. Stop, ignore, listen, empathize, never complain, and eat. Or as we like to call it, the silence system. Here. Let's watch what happens when silence is put into action. So I'm not racist. Stop. Like, I voted for Obama. Ignore. Like, I understand the reason for the Black Lives Matter movement. Listen. But it's just like, all lives do matter. Empathize. I just feel like race really isn't relevant in America anymore. Never complain. You're really easy to talk to, Adrian. And eat. That's right. Excellent. Adrian was able to diffuse a potentially hostile work situation by using silence. Great work, Adrian. America is a beautiful country built on some ugly things. Things that just don't belong in the workplace. And in order to remain productive, we must all pitch in to protect our most powerful and most fragile. Because when silence works, everyone works. So let's all be sensitive, white sensitive. Hey, I'm so glad the two of you made it to the end of this video. Ah, it's just us, finally. So now that I have you here, why don't you do something for me? Why don't you subscribe? Yeah? Okay, cool. See you next time. Okay, that'll get us to the end of the show here. We've got about three minutes before our breaker, and then uh, Flat Black Plastic with Scott Walker coming right up next here on Mutiny Radio. This is the B reminding you that if one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. You don't have a seat at the table the negotiating table where you work. You're on the menu. Like I said, you'll end up too old to work and too young to die, as Joe Glazer sang for us earlier. So wherever you are and wherever you work, stand up. Stand up and be counted or else you'll be counted as sitting down. 
This is the B, and I'll see you next week. Oh, you'll hear me next week. Meet me radio, 2781 21st Street. Listen to a bit of Honky Tonk Women by Playing for Change. Tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of MutinyRadio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice. LGBTQ friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit face McRat. <laughs> Got mutiny, mutiny radio. Got mutiny, mutiny radio. Got mutiny, mutiny radio, my friend. Got mutiny, mutiny radio. Got mutiny, mutiny radio. Got mutiny, radio, my friend. You ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be, like, in front of an audience? Like, other than, like, squirrels, dogs, and dead persons? Oh, shoot. From time to time, I've been giving it a thought of two. You know, if you go to joke workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes. And they'll even say nice things, dude, before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dang nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! I'm Michael Spiegelman. And I am Carl, not Spiegelman. We're hosts of... You uh, with Michael Spiegelman. 
follow us on podcast by with our acronym L-W-A-F-L-M-O-Y-T. We watch a full-length movie on YouTube with you, and you listen to the podcast and yeah. watch the movie at the same right. time. Yeah. L-W-A-F-L-M-O-Y-T. Yeah, L-W-A-F-L-M-O-Y-T. L-W-A-F-L-M-O-Y-T. That's every Sunday, 2 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, or if you're Carl, 5%. Right, I'm so lazy. Three hours later, I finally get to the show, 5 p.m. Let's hear the theme song. Oh. Let's watch full-length movies. Let's do a full-minute promo. Oh, never mind. Bye. See you next month. I was just leaving the theater. Convertible 1969 gold Cadillac with a white interior. I drove it up here. And I started to do some thinking. around in it on the freeway, and I'm having a really, really good time. Flat black glass. Smoking big spliffs and cruising. Saturday noon to two. On the freeway. Good feeling. I'll tell you. Can I see? Jesus. Jesus. I am petty, various, and adolescent. And I will cut the Henry! Yeah, Charlie here. Yeah. I have a report here, Henry, from your uh, from your chief nurse, Major O'Houlihan. She makes some accusations, Henry. I, I find pretty hard to believe. Uh the dude minds, man. Safe sex is more than just avoiding STIs and pregnancy, no matter what you're into. Make sure that you and those around you feel safe, comfortable, and are having a good time. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio. Hey, everybody. Listen to the Weekly Review with Roman every Friday from noon to 2 p.m. This is an unapologetically anti-capitalist program. We interview community organizers, activists, and artists. We talk about ways you can take action right now. So listen in to the Weekly Review every Friday from noon to 2 p.m. My name is Breakfast, and I'm running for Chancellor of the United States of America. For too long, we have gone without a Chancellor who is willing to take bold leaps of faith and logic to create new possibilities for our great, big, fat nation. As your Chancellor, I will balance the budget on the head of a pin, give entertaining speeches, have scandalous affairs, Write strongly worded letters to unpopular foreign leaders. Look good on camera. End all hunger, crime, abuse, war, 
Disease, disasters, sadness, depression, oppression, repression, suppression, transgression, obsession, expression, impression, regression, and digression by signing pieces of paper that express my disapproval of such things. And invest in an American flag pin to be worn prominently on my stylish jackets. It's time to work together to take the country back from us and return it to ourselves. It's time to turn this country around and drive it into opposing traffic. It's time to take a chance on the Chancellor. insatiable appetite for all things in life, who scream at nothing and everything at the same time, who dance till sunup, who cause the sun to set again with irreverent bow, who rival the moon with gravitational force, who leave rooms feeling empty and earthquake struck, who don't give a fuck, who make, who do, who dream out loud and laugh like maniacs, who draw shock and awe on faces graced with watching, who create from the soul of an orgasm, who swagger even alone in the shower, who fight with passion and love with passion and our passion who catapult over cliffs in the name of revolution who would rather die than fall in line to conform who constantly challenge the norm who greet each and every day as if just born i say to you i know your greatness the way a suicide jumper knows weightless just before the impact and in fact i know it best when i say to you i love you Hello there, my friends out at Mutiny Radio. Chester Cashcock here, giving you my love and regards as well as Mufi's over there. And you know, anytime I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Bamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10. They have a fun time at Pamtastic's Deep in the Mission, where you can laugh off your tushy every Friday for a mere $10. And ten dollars, I mean, that's what I use to wipe my tushy with, so to wipe it off, for... <laughs> it's in duty this. And if you can't make it to Mutiny Radio, don't worry, don't spread it all. You can simply download the podcast post-show in the comfort of anywhere, like your Aspen summer cottage in the mountains or kayaks. <laughs> Just go to podcast.pcrcollective.org or mutinyradio.fm podcast and look for Comedy Clubhouse. You can download it for free. But we'd love to see you every Friday to 10 down here at 